Welcome to the Theo 101 Pop Culture Smackdown Podcast. You, you love it. We love it. Come We're on. We're so excited to be here with you all today. Day of all days. Day of all days. Whatever day you're listening Whatever to day it is. Um, our topic um, this week, we're going to be talking about the topic Jesus saves. Okay, yes. That's what we're doing. Which um, is like an artifact and also a theological statement it's, in and of itself. It's a lifestyle. It's a way. Um, One of my favorite bumper stickers, really. I, I'm not huge into like religious bumper stickers. Per you're se. not. You don't have a religious bumper sticker on your car. I don't. But I, I don't mind the Jesus saves. It's like simple to the point. Oh, the um, Jesus saves is is actually a good one. Um, if you're going to go there, there is where you should go. If you're <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other ones are just... Our big a little, a little much. Our big word this week is letters, of course. Letters and Jesus saves is our topic for this. Is what we're calling this little pop culture smackdown because we are going to dive into this question of Jesus saves. Yes, but like, and how? how? How does Jesus save? And it turns out that this question for Christians is a biggie. Yes, is a biggie, and it's a biggie. Um, and there's a big theological word for it, and that word is atonement. Yes, it is a kind of of thinking about how Jesus saves. Um, I, I think in biblical studies, as well as theological studies, mm-hmm. we talk about the word soteriology, which is mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. from the Greek word for soter, savior. Soter, save, like yeah. the, the study of how Jesus saves. Yeah, so like atonement, the idea of the atonement is one of the most important, biggest mm-hmm. theories as to how Jesus saves. You're right. And then beneath, you, you, so beneath this title, atonement or soteriology, these related terms are all kinds of like, is a, is a long and really rich and, and even sometimes very contentious history of theology. How on, does he do how it? How does he do it? Like, for instance, some people have this theology where it's like, well, it's, it's kind of like God was so mad at humanity and he just saw us and it was so gross that he had, he really needed like blood, like he needed to kill somebody to make it right. And that person ended up being his own son. It's the so there's that. There's also this idea of like that there's um, a sacrifice that's needed. There's also this idea that like um, maybe Jesus was just a moral exemplar. Like actually, God didn't need a blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And there's biblical language around it, but really it's about the example that Jesus set in his life, dying for your friends, and that's how Jesus saves. But that's really different. Like even just those two yeah. simple ideas. What the so-called um, 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 what's the, what's the, 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 the soteriology behind that, the substitutionary atonement oh, substi- oh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. of that first yeah, yeah. one, that, that concept is really different from the idea of Jesus as say a moral exemplar. And then there are like all kinds of yeah. other sub views that you could do here. One of the most interesting ones to me is the idea that God has a certain amount of honor and that humans have dishonored God oh, with the sin act. And so then Jesus restores honor. So mm-hmm. basically there's a, a ton of conversation about mm-hmm. That there's a problem in the world. Mm-hmm. It is sin. Jesus solves that problem mm-hmm. in some way. But how Jesus solves that problem has to do with how you think about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the relationship between Jesus to mm-hmm. the Father, so the Son to the Father, mm-hmm. and then the relationship between uh the father, the son and the spirit. It really is a huge question about the person of God. You know mm-hmm. how you think about that. And almost every theory has robust biblical support behind oh. it. So oh, there's yeah. just like all these different ideas. Oh, it's, it's like, it's one of the best types. I mean, I just the, the briefest overview of the way that theologians talk about this. One very popular view is called recapitulation. Mm-hmm. It's one of the earliest ones that Christians did. It was popularized by Irenaeus. Um, the idea is that Jesus enters 
humanity are at birth and identifies with us and he maintains this identification but in this reversal he carries this through into resurrection and then we identify with him in this defeat of death okay another one is ransom or satisfaction it was very popular in the middle ages during a, a, a feudal society right where you had you know lords and ladies and lords had to have honor paid to them i think it overlaps with that yeah, honor yeah, thing yeah. you're just yeah. talking about um another one um um is christ christ the victor christus victor is related to the ransom or satisfaction model but that the idea that um you know like we're slate like like sin has enslaved us and jesus actually has to come like as a, re a rescuer a victor mm -hmm. and get us out um penal substitution penal substitution that's the phrase i was looking for penal as in judicial substitution um the idea that um we are guilty like so guilty and god has to punish the guilt to remain just or holy um, and then another one sometimes called covenant reconciliation, the idea that there's a covenant and God has to come and, you know, do stuff. So I just want to provide that to say there are like fancy terms for these things. But, oh, friends, do you think Dr. Payne and I are going to debate this? We're not even smart enough. <laughs> We're, We're going to leave it to some other very smart professors. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to leave it to Dr. Javier Garcia and Dr. Nijay Gupta. Oh, yeah. Who, about a, a little while back in another version of this course, um, actually debated this issue. Mm -hmm. If Jesus saves, how does Jesus save? Mm -hmm. um, between one another. And then at the end, Dr. Doak and I are going to come back. And like we usually do during yeah. the pop culture smackdown, we will share our own views we'll let dr garcia and dr gupta um do their own kind of like characterization of what their views are and what they're debating but they're basically debating is the so-called very popular penal substitution model the right way as you're going to hear dr javier garcia who's a christian theologian and he directs our honors program here at george fox university he's going to say yes it is it's a great way to view things and dr nijay gupta who's a new testament professor at our seminary or he was when he was doing this um and now he's gone on to um, another position at a different university, but we still got him trapped here in this debate, um, and we're still gonna we're still gonna listen to him here because he's a super great theologian and a biblical scholar, and he's gonna debate. They trade some jabs back and forth. It's kind of a fun debate. It's front of is in front of five hundred plus people in Bauman Auditorium. Yes, and we think you're gonna like it. So enjoy, enjoy. By the way, I want to They've introduce promised. our I'm going to introduce our speakers now so we kind of get that out of the way and if there's anything further we can do. Of course, in this corner we have our lecturer from Monday, Dr. Javier Dr. Garcia. Dr. Javier Garcia. Dr. Javier Garcia is going to pitch to you a theory of the atonement that he wants you to believe in and we're going to leave it up to him to tell you exactly what that is. His opponent in the other corner, Dr. Nijay Gupta. Welcome Dr. Gupta. You remember Dr. Gupta? Dr. Gupta has different ideas about the atonement from Dr. Garcia, and we're going to hear all about those. And last but not least, sitting in the chair of honor in the center of the debaters to keep them from physically attacking each other if necessary, <laughs> Pastor Tony Nguyen from Old Town Church. Uh, let's give him a hand. Yay. Pastor Tony is new to us, but you're going to love him. And he's quite the theologian uh, in his own right, so we're super happy that he's with us. Pastor and Tony, welcome. So happy. Love those shoes, by the way. It's, it's perfect. It's we want to remind you really quickly of the debate. Uh, they're not really rules, but guidelines that we've established, which is the fact that every uh, position that you will hear represented is a, considered to be a very traditionally Christian position. 
Um, so that is the unity that you will see, but they will also, there will be some distinctions. So that's something that just to keep in mind. Um, and that we're not thinking of this in terms of winners and losers, although you may certainly be more convinced of a position uh, one way or another. Um, and then was there another rule I forget? Nah, let's just stick with those two. Yeah, let's go with that. I'll moderate this and kind of keep us going on track, and we're going to turn to Pastor Tony for a kind of commentary on it at a key point. And then, of course, as always, we're going to flip this back open to you, so get your questions wet, ready, written on paper, um, or however the people who are doing the mics want you to do that. And they can come up and maybe they already have the mic. I don't know what they're doing back there, but they're back there, okay? Let's do this! <laughs> All right. We're going to have the dueling podiums today. First up, Dr. Javier Garcia is going to have seven minutes. Pastor Tony's got the timeout. He's got a pink sheet, which he's going to wave when there's one minute left, if needed. And then he's going to wave it again at the end. And you, you, you got to obey Pastor Tony or else, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's just the way this is. Dr. Javier Garcia, the floor is yours. Penal substitution is the best understanding of the atonement. And I'm going to argue why in the next seven minutes. First... I want to talk about why penal substitutionary atonement is biblical. The first thing to say is the seriousness of sin. There are five main terms in the New Testament to describe sin that are both passive and active. Some describe sin as missing the target or failure to attain a goal. The others uh, talk about unrighteousness and iniquity. Others, evil. And so these speak to an inner corruption in, um, in human beings. But the more active terms, parabasis, which is trespass or transgression, or stepping over a boundary, and anomia, means lawlessness, a total disregard for the law and violation of a known law. So what I want to make sure you understand is that sin in the Bible is not casual. It is lawlessness and rebelliousness against God that is deep-seated in our hearts. And Paul talks about this uh, in Romans, saying that we are in basic hostility towards God because of our godlessness. And so you can also see this in the psalmist who says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So most, all of our sins are, even though they're directed against other people, uh, they are ultimately against God. So, with all this in mind, we understand sin as essentially separating us from God and placing us in total hostility against Him. So if you think sin is not a big deal, the Bible would disagree with you. Next, the language of wrath. Throughout Scripture, sin arouses the wrath of God and His punishment in response. It should be said that God's response in punishment is often uh, tied with a type of loving uh, mercy as well. So if you think of Adam and Eve, you might think of that as the first sin. They broke the commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God punished the serpent, Eve, and Adam, if you remember uh, in these curses in the, in the beginning of Scripture. And so they are also driven out of the Garden of Eden. And you can say that this is merciful because he doesn't kill them right away, but actually takes them out of the garden. Now, when the world is full of corruption, God is sorry that he made man and decides to blot out man, only having Noah and his family as survivors. That's Genesis 6. We also see a similar pattern of anger in Exodus. Moses has to convince God not to destroy his people after the golden calf when the Bible says in Exodus 32 that God was hot with anger against his people. 
And so when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but that he will by no means clear the guilty. So we can already see this pattern in the very beginning of Scripture, uh, but this also is continued in uh, the tradition of the prophets. Just read the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 5 says, They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So if you take the prophetic tradition seriously, God's anger is aroused by sin. And we also see this in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, by their unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So penal substitution depends on the idea of this, uh, that sin requires propitiation. God's wrath needs to be appeased in order to deal with sin. Now, thankfully, in the logic of uh, sacrifice, the Old Testament also talks about a substitute. Now, if you think about Leviticus especially, there is a sacrificial lamb uh, on which sin is put as a substitute for the sins of the people. So, uh, think of Abraham, for example. When he's going to sacrifice Isaac, his son, God provides a ram in his stead. And so this blood sacrifice communicates to us that the substitute animal was killed in recognition that the penalty of sin was death and that blood was sprinkled and the offerer's life was spared because of that exchange. Now the question becomes, who is the substitute? Uh, As I talked about on Monday, Isaiah 53 is a very, very good text to go to say that Christ is this sacrificial lamb, this substitute, this scapegoat who will appease the wrath of God that we deserve as sinners. So Romans 5.8, for example, says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on behalf of us. And Isaiah 53 talks about how Christ was um, an innocent lamb, and the early church really uh, focused on Isaiah 53 to prove that Christ was this uh, substitutionary lamb, that he was crushed for our iniquities, etc. And you can also see in Acts 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, Philip, the apostle, explains to him in reference to Isaiah 53 who God is and who Jesus is and the good news of Jesus. So this is a kind of explicit reference uh, to Christ. I have a minute and a half, so I'd also like to talk about justification and righteousness. Um, Basically, the law is so serious and we have violated it to such an extent that we need someone who will give us perfect righteousness because we can never live up to the righteousness that the law requires. This is what Paul's letter uh, depends on in Romans 1, where Paul argues that all have fallen short of the glory of God and of his law. And so, the Bible says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 about Jesus, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so my final point is that in order for us to be saved, we need a perfect righteousness and to be considered righteous. And the only way to do this is through Christ who comes in our place, pays the price that we uh, deserve as sinners, and then we are righteous by faith in believing in him. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Garcia. Now up, Dr. Nijay Gupta, seven minutes. 
The gentleman on my right is a formidable opponent, so we're going to get serious. <laughs> That's right. Come on. All right. All right, don't waste my time. All right. My view is called Union with Christ. Union with Christ. What is the problem? According to the Bible, the problem is sin. Sin has corrupted the human person. It's broken the image of God in us and twisted our desires and behaviors. We do not uh, do what we know we should do, and what we do is wrong. Look at Romans 3. It reminds us that we are corrupted and therefore sin. The problem of sin is the corruption of the person to become broken and unrighteous, affecting our ability to know God, worship Him, and live rightly in the world as agents of God. The Bible talks about us as in Adam, conformed to the corrupt person of Adam. Sometimes the Bible talks about this as the old person or old man. So what is the solution? What is the nature of atonement? The solution is the restoration of that broken image to wholeness that cannot be done from the outside, but must be done from within us, from the inside. Christ creates a new pattern of humanity that changes us, and we conform to a new person, a new Adam in Christ. So a key text for this, I appeal to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You probably have heard this before. If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Over a hundred times, Paul uses the language of in Christ. He's pointing to a new sphere of existence that is able to transform us. We can also look to Romans chapter 6, which offers a pattern of how we come to have this new life by sharing in the burial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the new life of Jesus. Paul says, do, not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death. So, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. We might no longer be enslaved to sin. The gentleman on my right wants to convince you that the answer is substitution. But with substitution, you have essentially an exchange. You have that old image of the criminal on death row that, that should deserve death and the innocent person that takes their place. And in that model, an essentially substitutional model, you have a criminal go free and you have an innocent person condemned to death and they never touch places. They substitute. The whole idea of a substitute is the exchange of places. But actually, the Bible doesn't talk about Christ dying for us. It talks about us dying with Christ. Another way to think about this formulation is using the language of theosis. Theosis is often misunderstood 
as us becoming gods. So I want to clarify what theosis means because I feel like this is one version of union with Christ. Salvation and transformation are possible in Christ because we become like Christ, the Son of God, and we enter into living communion with God, able to share by God's grace the divine life. An early theologian named Irenaeus said it this way, our Lord Jesus became what we are, that he himself might bring us to be even what he is himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of, degree of glory to another. This happens through being united with Christ. One of my friends, his name's Ben Blackwell, he teaches at Houston Baptist University. He explains the image of theosis as if you have this kiln or fire, and then you put a sword into the fire, the blade of the sword, and, and, the, and, and the blade of that sword becomes uh, heated by that fire and actually takes on the, the thermal properties of that heat. He says it this way, the iron remains what it is by nature, we are human, but its attributes are transformed through participation in the fire. It remains iron and cuts as a sword, but it now glows red and burns. This metaphor illustrates theosis. Just as the iron does not cease to be iron, humans do not cease to be human. But by participating in the fire, the iron sword is transformed, becoming like the fire. It too becomes hot and glows. Similarly, in the process of theosis or deification, believers are united to God and become like Him, experiencing His divine life and holiness. We see this, for example, in John chapter 15 with the image of the vine and the branches. I am the true vine, my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch of me that bears no fruit. You have been cleansed by the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me or live in me or become one with me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the, in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. In summary, we can appeal to Romans chapter 8, which union with Christ focuses on dealing with the problem of sin by becoming one with Christ in his burial, in his death, and in his resurrection and new life. Paul says, for those that he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gupta. Let's get the scarf and the hat up there at the podiums. Don't forget the beard. For five, yes, and the beard. The scarf and the beard versus the hat. For five minutes of totally unstructured smackdown time. Um, I don't know, clarify what's at stake. What did you disagree with? What did you agree with? What's happening here? Five minutes, Pastor Tony's got you timed on this. Five minutes, go for it. I think an essential difference that we need to elaborate on a little bit is this difference between uh, being considered righteous and being made righteous, right? This kind of... Um, reckoned as righteous that we see in Romans 4, right? So Paul argues in Romans 4 that Abraham was considered righteous before he was told to be circumcised in the covenant. So he's talking about Genesis 12, when God first appears to Abraham and tells him, uh, I'm going to do all these things for you. And Abraham says, uh, yes, okay, I believe. What, 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 must, what must I do? So already in Romans 4, according to Paul, it is that being reckoned righteous, which is most important out of all things. And so um, I'd also like to add, we are Barabbas, right? In the Gospels, 
there's this whole uh, moment where um, the people are, are yelling, crucify him, crucifying to Jesus. And Pilate says, no, 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 I'll give you Barabbas, who's a murderer, instead. And um, the people say, no, 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 we're going to take Christ. So that is an image of the exchange. We are Barabbas, and Christ dies in our stead. So we are deserving to die, but instead, uh, this exchange is given. We are uh, uh, given freedom and life, and Christ takes on. So I'd like you to respond to those two things, the reckoning and Barabbas right. exchange. Uh, on the reckoning, um, the gentleman to my right wants you to think. Apparently, I don't have a name. <laughs> What's that about? Um, yes, the, the language of my reckoning is used in Scripture, but my, I guess a question I'd want to raise is to what end? What kind of people does God want in the end? Does he want people who wear the label of righteous or people who are actually righteous? He actually turns the table on this. Paul does in Romans chapter 2 where you have these Gentiles coming into the church and you have Jew, Jewish Christians who maybe don't like the kind of change of power uh, towards a Gentile church to the Gentile believers and what does Paul say he says who are the kind of people who will who will uh, have have the glory of God is it not those who are doing good and also we talk a lot about justification justification by faith uh, one of the criticisms of Luther, I think even Bonhoeffer criticized Luther, Luther for this, is it doesn't necessarily lead to a Christian ethic. Why be good if I can just wear this hat that says justified? So the way I see it, the way it's been explained to me is, it's like I was selected out of just a random group to play for the Timbers, right? We all wear the same jersey, but now I have to step up. And the question is, in a... In a justification-oriented, substitution-oriented theology, you have so many people that never step up, that never grow in righteousness or seek that because they can just wear the label of righteousness and that's it. I, I feel like that's a major critique. What was the second? Uh, Barabbas. Okay. The gentleman on my right, he likes to make assertions that actually aren't stated in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are Barabbas or that we're the crowds. We can make the, and the same thing goes for substitution. Actually, the mechanism of sacrifice is not explained in Scripture. I, I feel like there were some logical leaps there to say this is how it works. In fact, substitution is not by itself introduced as a concept in Scripture. You have a preposition. He used some Greek there, but I actually teach Greek. <laughs> he used yeah, and I'm actually a theologian, so, you know, it's a kind used, of... This is my time, sir. This is my time. I didn't see my time to you. He, used a, he, he didn't talk about the preposition huper, which can mean substitute, but often it means for the sake of. Christ didn't die in our place. He died for our sake, and that distinction needs to be recognized. And I would say huper also is hyper-debated. Okay, <laughs> so there are two sides to that story. Um, you, notice how I use a pun That's as noted, a weapon. Sir. That's noted, sir. That's noted. Yes. Um, so I'd like to say uh, when it comes to declaring righteous, God's word is powerful. As we know, God created out of nothing, and he speaks us into existence. So, when he declares us righteous, it would be a misunderstanding to think that that is an empty word. Actually, when God declares us righteous because of what Christ has done for us, as in 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, that verse that I read, he becomes our righteousness. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in that declaration, we are actually made righteous because we're considered righteous. So it's not an empty word, unless, of course, you want to imply that when God considers us righteous, he's lying. 
Also, now uh, I have 10 seconds. I would like a chance to for a yes, rebuttal. Okay, go for it. Go for I would it. like a chance for a rebuttal. You have four seconds. Okay. <laughs> Wrong. In every single part of Scripture, even within Paul, every time that judgment is brought up, it is always related to the judgment of works. Humans are never judged on the basis of faith or status. How would you explain that? But we don't have time, so you can't answer. <laughs> debaters, debaters, well done. Have a seat. We're going to come back to you. You're not done totally yet, but have a seat. Yes. Pastor oh, Tony, Pastor Tony, no, you've been taking it all. That was in, man. good. You're I, a youth pastor. We need you to bring right. this. We need you to youth pastor for us a little bit here. Like bring this down to earth. Like I, this, I why think it's this always matter? dangerous to hand um, a youth pastor a mic because we might be in here for a while. Um, give us a captive good, audience. Give us a, good, yeah. give us a good three or four minutes. Like, what do you totally. think Totally. So, it, if I had to assess uh, the argumentation by who's right, I wouldn't do it by content, but, but by sheer force of will. Man, Dr. Gupta just <laughs> laid it. I, I love the, the angst. As a millennial, I love the angst. But I think, I think as, as somebody who, who is in ministry... Not to say that Dr. Garcia and Dr. Gupta aren't in ministry, but I think for you guys, where I'd like to drive it home for us is this. It's to affirm that both um, uh, proposals of the work of Christ are valid, and I think all um, proposals of what the work that Jesus does for us and on our behalf is valid because it addresses a different component of who we are. I think the question that I want to drive us towards is, um, so what? What does that mean? So we know what Jesus did, and oftentimes you and I can get caught up in the mechanics of it, the, the mechanisms, the system of how it's done, why it's done, what is done, but I want to talk about the effectiveness of it and to affirm both argumentations, to say both are equally valid because they address... Um, different aspects of who we are. And so to sum that up, it's to say this. Um, our faith and our belief does not add to the work that God does for us. Our faith and our belief does not make God's work more effective for us. When, when it means that God saves, it means God saves. And we don't add to that. Um, it's to say that we're secure um, in the reality of God saving. And so that's, that's what I'd, I'd like to add is, is what does that mean for us that God has given us righteousness or that we're joined to Christ? Um, it means that we're secure. So that's, I think, what I want to push for us and lead us to is that both arguments are valid and they, they form a beautiful mosaic, but it's that we are saved. That's what I'd like to land us on. Thanks for that, Pastor Tony. Uh, we'll come back to you and to the debaters here. But now it's your turn, class. Do you have questions about this? Do you have thoughts? Hands are raised. Not only is a hand raised there, but multiple people are pointing to the person with the hand raised. You can also write questions down. And um, we'll go from here. Say your first name. Not your last name, because then I have to bleep it out in the recording. And what your question is. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Isaac Bleep. <laughs> and, uh, I'm going to have to bleep that. Maybe that's your last name. I, you know, I don't know. 
Uh, and Dr. Gupta, you mentioned that um, there wasn't any biblical proof for penal substitution. Uh, and this morning I was reading in Hebrews 9, and when you mentioned that, starting in verse 11, this came to mind. Uh, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greatness, a greater and perfect tent, not through made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. If the blood of goats and bulls, with a sprinkling of, sprinkling of ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been defiled so that flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to the living God? Is that not direct proof of penal substitution? Yeah, you, you couldn't set me up better for rebutting that because, uh, again, substitution, the, the concept of substitution expects that we don't die. And virtually in all biblical texts, it's very clear. You know, Paul says, uh, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I don't think even the author of Hebrews, now the early church, many of them thought it was Paul, but, but even if it's not, you even look to Revelation, which, which fits a lot of the worldview of Hebrews, uh, talks about the saints dipping their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, believers get themselves dirty in the blood of death. It's as if God says, listen, the, the bad news is you have to die. There's no way around that. I think of C.S. Lewis in the table, right? You've you got to die. It's got to happen. A sacrifice has to be made. But I have made a pathway through death to the other side. And, and not only that, the added bonus is I can kill all the bad stuff on our way through. And um, St. Paul says in, in Galatians, I think, 5 or 6, he says, I have been crucified of the world, and the world has been crucified to me. Uh, this is actually a powerful message. I think substitution is, is a worse doctrine, in my opinion, than participation because I need to die. I don't want to be off the hook. And so when it talks about the blood, uh, the blood atoning, uh, actually the concept of atonement itself is not substitution. Actually, the concept is covering. When we're covered in the blood, right, this is implicating our death as well. So it may be a bit of semantics, but, but that's very different than substituting where you say this thing doesn't die and this does. Dr. Garcia, you want to jump in on this? Um, I, liked, I liked what he said. <laughs> uh, I'm pointing to the student. Uh, so I guess the, the disagreement here is between expiation and propitiation, right? Does... Um, in atonement, is it a covering of sin or is it an appeasing of, of God's wrath that uh, is uh, evoked by sin? And so uh, there are different ways of reading scripture, but um, I would also like to say in, in res responding to Tony's point, the so what, you might think that substitution is a weakness because it means that we don't have to do anything. I mean, nobody would deny that in the scriptures we're called to do good works, okay? Can I get an amen? Like a bigger amen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, and even Paul, who writes Romans 4, says, do good unto all, and especially to the household of faith. And he's, he remembers the poor. He's very adamant. Um, if you've seen the risen Christ, and Christ is the one who uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount, then, of course, good works are, are very important in the Christian life. What I find compelling about the substitution model is that it issues forth in gratitude in the believer. So if you're able to meditate on what Christ has done in your stead and taken on the punishment that you deserve, that should just like explode in you into a life of good works and gratitude and thanksgiving because 
um, you've been spared that, and you can see the love of God in Christ in that substitution. So I think the exchange is actually more existentially powerful than Dr. Gupta is giving it credit for. Okay. Wow. Great debate there. Fun thinking of yeah. doing these debates in person. I don't know. Do you, we weren't debating. So it's like, do we really have to give our view? Do you have a particular view on the atonement? Well, I, okay. My, my viewpoint um, really comes to me through the art that I enjoyed as a child. Oh. And one of my favorite songs about the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ is called The Victor by a guy mm. named Keith Green. Mm. And it basically, Keith Green basically uses the idea of Christus Victor, like the idea mm. that, that Christ is victorious and in part because he has snatched life or uh, life from the hands of death mm. and has in like descended to hell, defeated the powers of the devil mm -hmm. and come back with mm -hmm. his children, mm -hmm. the people of God. And to this day, I, I'm a sucker for that viewpoint, but I, I'll, I don't know about you. This is what I think. Yeah. I don't, I think I have a favorite, but I don't have one that I think is righter really than others. Maybe there are some that I think are wronger, but writer, you know, longer. yeah, I, the, I choose the one that to me, um, that, that, seems like the most it's the one i enjoy in terms of like it's an aesthetic that i enjoy but i think mm. that there are other really great theories that mm. may definitely like speak truths from the scripture that's my favorite one i'm really with you on this i have a similar view to this that i have on on, on solutions to the problem of evil or why people okay. suffer in okay. that i think scripture and the tradition offers us almost like a toolkit or a toolbox yeah, yeah, there's like you there. wouldn't be like for instance if you were if you were a mechanic you wouldn't be like hey i used a wrench to fix this one tool therefore i'm going to use a wrench for everything that's totally and right. the same size like i think this is one of those issues where but i think for our students who are thinking about this, it's like, as you listen to Dr. Garcia and Dr. Gupta, it's like, wh which of them do you think has the better argument? If I were to, mm -hmm. if I were to go on that one, here's what I think about the debate. I think Dr. Garcia, even though I don't know that penal substitution is the tool I would pull out most, most often in this debate. I think that there's a strong kind of point there. Like there's something that can't be denied. I think Dr. Gupta, he get to, for me, even as a biblical scholar, he's getting all into like specific passages and the wording in Hebrews and stuff. And it's like, well, that's true, but like there are so many other passages he could have brought up but didn't that didn't fit that that I find maybe his model to be too restrictive. But I guess people could listen to it and say Dr. Garcia's model was too restrictive too. Well, okay. So since we're getting into the nitty gritty of that, and then I want to hear your favorite yeah. uh, theory. I would have to say that um, so I, I, I'm not sure that in his argument that I would agree with how Dr. Garcia characterized some of the other modes of mm. thinking about um, the atoning work of Christ, mm. like Christ as moral exemplar, mm -hmm. I think actually can explain certain things about the scriptures and the Christian life in a way that maybe that his, his characterization doesn't necessarily give credit for. So I credit to because one thing about people who really love penal substitutionary atonement and i don't even know, actually know if this is dr garcia's like 100 percent position but mm -hmm. there there's like if you love it you really love it like it's, if you're a yes, fan you're like yes. not just a fan there's no fan there's soup only super fans it's it's devotees tend to be super fans yeah yeah yes. so i think sometimes they can like love it so much that right, there's not necessarily right. 
a ton of room for other right. models. Well, and I think this is something to point out to students, and this has come up students a couple of different times with our debate, even over the idea of the sinner's prayer or, or Jesus in yeah, your heart. Yeah. I think some of us, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. Maybe it doesn't on you, but I would have fallen in this category for sure. I think some of us grew up in churches or church cultures where we assumed maybe until we got to college, who knows, maybe before then, that our church's way of talking about things was literally the only way on earth. Yes. And it was for us. But actually, and it's just, it's so like ingrained into the nature of our reality that we think, how, how could you, how dare you even think of it a different way? But people do, and Christians do, really robust, faithful Christians who are not you and not me, and they have different ways of thinking about really core things. And I think that's part of the joy and the freedom, actually, of studying theology. You know, can I just say that I think your toolbox metaphor, mm -hmm. I can see that you are a seasoned and skilled teacher because the toolbox the metaphor toolbox. is the gift that keeps on giving. I think that's yeah. exactly right. And if you think about like whatever tradition or whatever theory you were raised with mm -hmm. as addressing a particular need in the car right, right. <laughs> then as you grow and as you meet other people and as you come to college and you start exploring all these different ideas you see that right. there are lots of other things going on in that car and you need oh, you yeah. need other tools let let us just hear though dr doak what is oh. the the oh. theory of christ's atoning work that really works the best for you i would like the moral exemplar idea which i guess they didn't really talk about too much in the debate but we mm -hmm. kind of preface with it a little bit just this idea that like jesus shows us a way and we are to imitate him the problem with it is like jesus doesn't need to be god's son to be to do the moral sure, exemplar sure. you could have lots of other and i feel like people. you yeah yeah so i i feel like we need an atonement theory that accounts for the fact that jesus is god is god's son um, and so Christus Victor is one I really like because I like this idea that like Jesus saves us. That's in the phrase Jesus saves. Mm -hmm. Like he's got to save us, right? Penal substitution concerns me because it seems to embody a worldview that suggests that God actually, as opposed to loving us, actually hates us. And he would hate us, in fact, if it weren't just for a technicality, <laughs> namely that he had to kill his only son. And it actually, it sets up, it could, if well, taken the wrong way, not like probably most people take it, but if taken in the wrong direction, it could even sound like a kind of abusive kind of pattern that's disturbing, you know? And so I worry about penal substitution. But then again, I think it, I really believe in the toolbox metaphor, but Chris's Victor, that sounds good to me. But, you know, and I like yeah. I like Dr. Gupta's, too, in the debate. I mean, I think the stuff he was talking about was was an alter is an alternative to penal substitution, his own kind of spin on it that I think could make a lot of sense and, and, and helps. Is there any do you think that there are like particularities about being a biblical scholar or a, a scholar of the Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible that kind of orient you in a particular way? I mean, maybe, maybe. Because um, I know penal substitutionary atonement people um, typically point to Romans and they like to kind of stay there for right, long, long periods of right, time. Right. But I was like, oh, I wonder if he's thinking like that because he's a... I, you know, and it's like, scholar. I think too for students like who grew up in church cultures where there was a lot of preaching, say like out of the letters of Paul. Romans, beautiful book. What a book. Amazing. Mm -hmm, letters mm -hmm. of Paul, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, the Corinthians. Mm -hmm. But like some of us grew up in church cultures where this was like basically the only Bible. Yeah. And and people who don't even haven't even read or don't even know the actual gospels, which is the actual event. Like Jesus is the center <laughs> right. of the Bible, it's like pretty, not not Paul. He's pretty important. Paul's an inspired author of scripture, yeah. but not the center of the Bible actually. Like that's Jesus. And so I would be concerned with any any atonement theory that isn't centered on Jesus's own actions and teaching. Yeah, that's pretty important. I, I, I'm excited that we are exploring lots of the letters, mm -hmm. like all of, of the church letters mm -hmm. um, it, to one degree or another in this course, because um, they all speak to the person of Jesus in their own distinct way.
Totally. All right, students, it's your turn. It's here.